beast has breached. We are at the edge of the cliff. We're standing there with our pilgrim and Virgil, and we're about to find the way over. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk. Wow, do we slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. If you're dropping in here for the first time, you might want to go back because we we've covered a lot of material this podcast has now been recording for a year and we have come almost to the midpoint of inferno so not social media so not the modern world and so be it this is a tough passage lines 1 through 27 of canto 17 of inferno it is packed with all kinds of strange material. I want to go slowly. You might want to take this podcast episode in sections. You can drop down in some of the explanatory comments and find out actually where the sections start for all of these podcasts. Otherwise, we're just going to go through it. So here we go. Canto 17, lines 1 through 27 of Inferno. Behold the beast with the stabby tail. This thing passes over the mountains and breaks the walls as well as any armaments. Behold the one who makes the whole world smell like crap. That's how my leader started speaking to me as he waved the hideous thing to come onto the shore near the end of our hard-as-marble path. And that nauseating portrait of fraud came toward us, its head and chest coming to rest, but its tail lolling about over the edge. Its face was the face of a just man. In fact, it seemed benevolent, at least skin deep, but all the rest of it was more like a serpent. Both arms were hairy from the pits down. Its back, chest, and both hips were painted with knots and whorls. No embroidery or weaving was ever made with that much color by Tartar or Turk, nor did Arachne ever make something like that on her loom. As rowboats sometimes lie at the bank of a river, partly in the water and partly on the land, and just as among those drunks, Germans, a beaver sets himself at the water's edge to start his siege. So lay the worst of the beasts supine on those stones that lip the sand. All of its tail waggled out over the nothingness, curling up its venom-filled fork that was armed like a scorpion's. 27 lines to describe the beast that breaches on the edge of the cliff at the end of the seventh circle, the violent of hell. And we're not really done with the seventh circle, as you'll just see in the next episode of the podcast. But here we are. The beast has breached. It has been well described. And I want to say a couple things before we hit this passage as a whole. One, in order to understand where we are, you have to go back to Canto 11 and Virgil's map of hell. And remember, Virgil says there are three rings below us as we're sitting here at the bottom of the heretics. There are three rings below us. And if you go to lines 52, 53, and 54 of Canto 11, you find what we're about to encounter. Virgil says, 
People can use fraud, that's the rings we're about to find, by which every connection of conscience is chewed up against someone who trusts them and against the ones who have invested no trust. We're about to enter the circle of the second one of those, the fraud against those who have invested us with no trust. And here is the beast of fraud itself. And two, here's the other thing I want to say before we really get going. Canto 17 is often seen as a transitional canto. That is, it transitions us from the seventh circle of the violent to the eighth circle of the fraudulent. And a lot of what happens in here is going to be seem like it's transitional material, that it's just a way to get us from 16 to 18? That's not true. This is not a transitional canto. It is an important canto about poetic technique. With that said, let's get going. The canto opens with Virgil already saying, behold the beast with the stabby tail. And you should know that this connects us right back to the last passage. If you remember at the end of Canto 16, we saw this thing come up like a diver rising up, coming from below the surface, from down where it pulled up an anchor or something hidden in a reef. And it comes up and Dante swears on his comedy that he truly saw this thing. And then the next words are Virgil's in the beginning of the 17th canto. You'll notice, A, that cantos are starting to bleed across each other. This is not necessarily the poetic strategy of the early parts of Inferno, in which cantos seem to be more like modern chapters in a novel in which they're contained. Now they seem to be breaking over. And two, it can't be a mistake that Dante swears on his comedy and then Virgil speaks. In fact, it can't be a mistake, and we're going to talk more about this through out the 17th canto. It can't be a mistake that Dante swears on his comedy that he really saw the beast of fraud. Do you really think he did? That he really saw the beast of fraud. And now we enter a canto 17 in which essentially the pilgrim is silent. Much description, much talk from Virgil, and much talk from the poet about what the pilgrim saw, but the pilgrim himself is relatively silent inside this canto. This all can't be by mistake. We come out of swearing on the comedy that you really saw this thing, and Virgil, the classical poet, starts out. How does he start out? Ah, that's the next point. Behold the beast. Echo la fiera. Behold the beast. And this is a blasphemous rendition of Ecce Homo, or as Dante would have said as ecclesiastical Latin was pronounced in his day, Ecce Homo. That is, behold the man. This is what Pilate says when he presents the beaten Jesus to the crowd. Behold the man. In other words, Virgil is using an inversion of a moment from the crucifixion, the the passion of Christ, and Virgil is being put, ironically, in the place of Pontius Pilate. Instead of Virgil, the classical poet, presenting the height of salvation, Jesus bound, beaten, headed for the cross, instead of that, Virgil, the classical poet, is presenting the beast of fraud. (laughs) This 
this has got to be intentional, right? This has got to have some thematics behind it because you can't just invoke ecce homo, or as we might say now, ecce homo. You can't just invoke this phrase, this famous bit of the Christian passion story with this beast and not, not intend me to sit up and say, wait, what, 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 what? who is Virgil, who, what's going on here? Why is the classical poet presenting suddenly the image of fraud? And what does he present? Ah, uh, that's even more interesting. He introduces the beast by naming the parts of the beast. I want to talk about that for a minute, but I want to just back up and make one point. This beast does have a name. And in every single commentary that you could ever read, the beast is now going to be named. You're going to look at the notes for lines one through three of Canto 17, and they're going to say, oh, the beast is named blah, because actually way down in the canto, way down in line, what, 95, 97, way down there, don't remember exactly, but way down there, the beast is actually named name, but not until then. And you know what? I'm not going to name it either because I think it does a disservice to the text. By naming the beast at this point, you're not going to see it. And I think the poet intends you to see this thing and not worry about the classical reference that its name invokes. So let's look at it. What does Virgil say? Behold the beast with the stabby tail. I should just tell you, we're going to come back to this, that tail is super important to this canto. The whole notion of the butt end of things is extremely important. But he says, notice the beast with the stabby tail. And then he says, again, the tail in line nine is lolling out over the edge. And we start to get all these pieces of it, arms and back and chest and hips. You know what we're getting, to use the fancy word, we're getting synecdoches. Synecdoche is a figure of speech in which a part stands for the whole. Remember your old English classes? A part stands for the whole. So you can say 500 head of cattle. Well, you don't mean heads of cattle. You mean the whole cow is standing there. But you say it as a synecdoche, to use the fancy term. You say it using the part to stand for the whole hall. Or when you say, um, uh, shall we visit the toilet? You don't just mean the toilet. You mean the whole room it's in, the bathroom. You mean the sinks and the mirrors and, you know, the whole thing. You don't just mean that thing, but <laughs> you're using a part to represent the whole. And in fact, this canto is going to turn on several rhetorical strategies of which synecdoche is the prime one, breaking things into their parts and showing us the part to stand for the whole. Why? Because, as I've said, the poetry is becoming more self-conscious and the poetic techniques here are getting thicker. Basically, this is a paraphrastic synecdoche. We're not naming the beast till way later in the canto. We're not bringing up the classical allusions until way later in the canto. And we're doing this all through high-level rhetorical strategies, which means that the poetry is becoming more, well, poetic. Let's move on. Dante says, its face was the face of a just man. And I want to quibble with the commentary right here. There is a lot said about this beast, the nauseating portrait of fraud that breaches itself onto the, to the edge of things, that breaks the mountains and breaks the walls and the 
armaments. And notice just right there, walls and armaments. That's more synecdoche. That's more using the parts to mean the whole. In other words, nothing can stop this thing. So I'm going to point to armaments, especially bodily armor in the Florentine, and walls as pieces of warfare. But this thing is bigger than any warfare itself, and it has the face of a just man. Okay, now to quibble with the commentary. In the commentary, there has been a long tradition of associating this beast with a passage from the Gospel of Matthew 7.15. It's a passage in which Jesus is offering a warning, and what he says is, beware the false prophets who come in the clothing of the sheep, but inwardly are as ravening wolves. Let me just say, that is not this creature. This creature is not coming just because it has the face of a just man. It's not got the interior of a ravening wolf. In fact, it's its nastiness, its scorpion-like ability to sting, and its many-painted coat is all on the outside. It's all there for you to see. It's not like you can be tricked. Sure, you can be tricked at first if you just look at the face. But slowly, if you take in the entire monster, you realize that fraud is not just the face of a just man, but it's this nasty, hairy body from the pits down on the arms. It's painted all over. It's tattooed, as it were, and it's got a scorpion's tail. All you have to do is see the whole thing. If, unfortunately, you stand just looking at its face, you're going to Mm, what am I going to say? You're going to miss the rest of it. And that is different from the warning in Matthew because the warning in Matthew is that the false prophets, the whole thing is clothed like sheep and it's their insides that are out of whack. No, this is a matter of recognizing what's there. You might be tricked by the face, but if you just look, if you pay attention to all the parts, if you, well, build all the synecdoches, you could get sick of me saying that word. If you build all the synecdoches on top of each other, you know what this thing is. This is the thing that takes you in. It's fraud. This is how fraud works. By offering you a kind face, the face of a just man, grabbing you with its claws and stinging you with its tail. Surely you've been in personal relationships like this. Surely you've been defrauded by people in the same way. This is the used car salesman of hell. Sorry, no offense if anyone out there listening is a used car salesman. Okay, let's move on. Both arms were hairy from the pits down and the language is starting to get gross. I told you already, we're going to come back to this, that there's an emphasis on the tail on the rear end of this thing. The language is starting to get coarser and coarser and believe me, in the eighth circle, it's going to get much much coarser, not fit for children. So here, of course, it's hairy from the pits down, it's back, chest, both hips were painted with knots and whirls. And the word used there is dipenti. It's the same word that was used to describe the leopard back in Canto 16, line 108. Painted. Remember, Dante said, I had a chord about my voice that I meant to catch the painted leopard. It's that same thing here. We might say that this thing is tattooed, but actually it's painted all over with knots and whirls. So it itself is fabricated, created, crafted. It itself is, dare I say it, a piece of art. 
Boccaccio, in his commentary, links the hairy arms from the pits down to dragons and says that we're supposed to hear think of the medieval fascination with dragons. And that may be the case. But what we seem to be seeing is something that's got a human face, that's got a hairy limbs in some way that's maybe got a scaly or painted or just skin body that's tattooed or painted all over and then has a scorpion tail. It's a very strange, strange monster. And I should tell you that while we're going to get to it when the thing is finally named, while it does have classical and biblical reference points, this thing doesn't look like anything ever made before. Isn't it funny that after Dante swears on the comedy that he saw this thing, that after Dante has entire discussions with Brunetto Latini about fame and with the Guelph heroes about how to be remembered, that here he just makes it up almost out of whole cloth. Yes, there will be classical references. Yes, there will be biblical references. But Dante has torqued it all in so many different ways that it's almost impossible not to admit that he's making this thing up. Moving on to the sudden number of similes and metaphors. And you should know that not only is this canto full of synecdoches, it is full of similes and metaphors, 15 of them in one canto. If this is not screaming at you about the heightened poetics, I don't know what is. No embroidery or weaving was ever made with so much color by Tartar or Turk. Now, both Tartars and Turks in Dante's day are known for being extraordinarily adept at the craft of weaving and making gorgeous tapestries, gorgeous cloth. However, both Tartars and Turks, no offense to any Tartars and Turks listening. <laughs> Listen, I didn't take offense as a homosexual at the homosexual, so don't take offense. Just accept this as a medieval problem. Tartars and Turks are known in Dante's day for being deceitful. So they're great at weaving. They're also really deceitful characters who will stab you in the back. And same with Ara Arachne. Notice it goes on. Nor did Arachne ever make something like that on her loom. The, uh, the, the story is that Arachne challenges Minerva to a contest, a weaving contest. And Minerva makes a tapestry about the gods and how great they are and in praise of the gods. And Arachne's um, tapestry is more about the gods and their deceitful lovemaking and the way that they have tricked humans. Uh, and Arachne's is, well, let's just say a little bit too honest. Minerva gets mad, tears up Arachne's tapestry. Arachne goes into despair and hangs herself. And as she hangs herself, Minerva turns her into a spider. A spider is, again, a combination of of craft and deceit. I mean, the idea is, right, that a spider weaves this beautiful web that is kind of translucent, except when dew is on it, and that bugs come and get caught in it. Notice again, the combination of craft and deceit. And then it goes on as if those two metaphors or images are not enough. Then it comes to two just straight up similes. As rowboats sometimes lie at the bank of a river, partly in the water and partly on the land, 
So there's one. So, you know, when you beach a rowboat, you kind of pull it up onto the to the sand there. And part of it's still back in the water, most likely. As that and just as those drunk Germans among them, a beaver sets himself at the water's edge to start his siege. So <laughs> we should just stop here and say, what's going on here? Well, two things. One, that there is a notion that the beaver catches fish by his tail. In Dante's day, this was the uh, observation that beavers supposedly, this is not true, but supposedly stick their tails into the water, secrete a musk, which beavers do secrete a musk, and that that attracts fish. The first person to point this out, that this beaver is catching fish kind of through a deceitful method, was Pietro di Dante, uh, Dante's own son Pietro, in his commentary. And he points this out as the beaver is deceitful, just like those drunk Germans. We want to come back to that in a second. Here's a problem. The word used here is bivero, um, which is can be translated beaver, but actually the word in Dante's Florentine for beaver is castoro, not bivero. So it's a little bit of a translation problem. Is it really a beaver? There may be a way that the poet is actually confusing um, minks or other uh, weasels or other creatures with beavers. A mm, little bit funky there. Uh, again, Pietro di Dante seems to smooth it out and say, oh, well, it's just the way beavers act. It's the way we thought beavers act. It's also a problem because beavers aren't too prevalent in Italy in Dante's day, much more prevalent, of course, up in Germany. But let's go back to that German reference because it's all part of it. The drunk Germans, so where the beaver sets himself to catch his fish at the water's edge amongst the drunk Germans. This is the first snide reference to the denizens of the Holy Roman Empire. And remember, Dante's great hope has been that the Holy Roman Emperor will descend and put things right in central Italy, will enter central Italy and reorganize things away from papal control and toward a more political control, thereby letting an emperor run politics and the pope run the church. That's Dante's great hope. And for the first time, we get a little sneering reference to the people who live up in the Holy Roman Empire. Why is that important? It seems as if, again, we've come over an edge in some fundamental way, fundamental way in terms of political hopes, fundamental way in terms of poetics. We've started to come over an edge, and the comedy is changing underneath us as Dante rethinks it. Let me tell you something else that's intriguing about this passage. The bit about uh, the Tartars and the Turks and Arachne, this passage right here that we're on, this is the moment in which Boccaccio's commentary of Inferno breaks off midline. It is theorized that Boccaccio actually died with the pen in his hand mid-sentence commenting on Inferno. I just wanted to point that out because I find it so interesting that mid-sentence, this is where Boccaccio breaks off and dies very soon thereafter, and many people connect the two as if he died at his desk while reading comedy. Don't die on me while we're reading comedy. Just notice what's going on here. A quadruple metaphor, two metaphors about Tartars and Turks, uh, and then about Arachne, and then two similes about rowboats on a river, and then about drunk Germans and beavers. And notice that 
all of these things are very, how do I say, well-placed. The Tartar Turk and Arachne metaphors that start are a political, then classical, balanced against each other. Then the next two similes, rowboats and beavers, are very homespun. They're not very highfalutin. So we get kind of high-level political, I know it's kind of disgusting to call Tartars and Turks deceitful, but still, for medieval thought, high-level political talk, high-level classical reference to Arachne, and then we drop down to very low-level stuff. This is all about craft and deceit. It's all about people who can make beautiful things but are at the same time deceitful, or beavers who can make beautiful things, <laughs> dams, I guess, but are deceitful, catch fish on the sly, as it were, by dipping their tails as if it's a lure into the water. That notion of the concept of craft and deceit together surely plays out in a passage that just finished with, I swear on my comedy, I really saw this thing. Surely it all is playing together to bring up, A, the inferiority complex that is getting expressed in comedy. Oh my gosh, I'm really making this thing up, and am I really going to have any kind of lasting fame when I'm talking about the afterlife that the church controls, and yet I'm just kind of making it up? And B, is this poem, which is based on classical models, really going to last, or are people going to just pay attention to those classical models and let them last? And while I'm at it, why don't I just make up something almost out of the blue that weaves together various classical and biblical images, this beast that has breached on the edge of the cliff, but that's really just truly my own. Craft, deceit, it's complicated and difficult. And let's say one more thing about the passage. It ends with, all of its tail waggled out over the nothingness, curling up its venom-filled fork that was armed like a scorpion's. So much emphasis on tails. First line, behold the beast with the stabby tail. Um, sixth line of the passage, near the end of our hard-as-marble path end. It's a similar idea to tail. And then ninth line, its tail lolling out over the edge. Now here we come to the end of this passage, its tail waggling out over the nothing. Tail, 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 tail. What is all this emphasis on tail? Robert Darling has a theory, and it's not such a bad theory. It can be overstated, but it's not such a bad theory. And that is, one of the ways the inferno is structured is that it moves down the body and that we have been up at the head, we've been at the heart, we've been at the liver, we've been moving slowly down the human body along the way in the structure of comedy itself. And once we get here toward the beginning of the eighth circle, the fraudulent, we are getting toward, well, the butt and particularly what comes out of the butt. And we're getting down deep in the body, and we're going to find a lot of genital references, a lot of references to the rear end of people. All of that is coming as the language coarsens, and it shouldn't surprise us that here in the 17th canto we're being set up for it with tail, 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 end, 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 tail. Just pay attention to its tail, its tail, its tail. Now I realize its tail has a scorpion edge. Its tail is what can kill you. I get the way the beast is constructed, and yet at the same time, well, at the same time, I think that there is a thematic relevance here toward moving to the ultimate refuge area, the sewer that is the eighth circle of hell that we are about to enter. 
but not quite yet. So much more to say in this non-transitional canto, a canto of poetic bravado in which you make up a beast out of whole cloth. You don't worry about the classical models. You don't worry about how Ovid and, talk, uh, and, and, and Virgil talked about this beast. You don't worry about what the New Testament says about about animals like this. You don't worry about any of it. You pull this beast out of Latini. We want to talk more about that. You pull it out of Latini's text and you warp it. It can't be a mistake that Latini's sitting right here with the model for this beast. You warp it to what you want it to do. And in the middle of this, you use such highfalutin techniques as synecdoche over and over again. And you pound metaphors and similes on top of each other because the poetics are getting gorgeous, they're getting redolent, they're getting visual, and the art is heightening around us. Stay tuned. There's so much more to say about the 17th canto. There's so much more to say about this beast that is breached. And we're not done with the seventh circle. We got more to see. Come back to the next episode of Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough.